Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now we have... Uh, kind of a special guest right now. Barbara Corcoran joins us from uh, the Corcoran Group, made her famous, of course, and wealthy, and she sold it. Now she is a judge, a shark on ABC's Shark Tank, I believe an executive producer of that program as well. And she's also got a webinar coming out with AT&T um, to help small businesses, I guess, do better. Barbara, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, talk to me first about this webinar. What are you doing? What are you doing with AT and T today? It's actually a webinar series, and we started a good seven eight months ago. I guess it's called Business Unusual. It's presented by AT and T Business, and it's intended to help the small business person just succeed more with what they're doing nine to five, or small business really nine to nine every day of the week. And so we covered topics that we hear are most in demand that people are most confused about. And we feel very proud that together we've been able to really push a lot of businesses ahead and give them a lot of support. So, Barbara, you know, it's been obviously such an incredibly difficult time for all businesses, particularly small businesses, over the past 18 months. What do you think right now is the key challenge? Is it the Delta variant? Is it getting labor? What's the primary focus now? Well, uh, let me uh, let me frame them by saying no matter what the focus is now, and I think that there's three pieces that are maybe equally important, uh, the one thing that strikes me more than any of the detail is that most business owners feel the worst is behind them. Okay. Now, that sounds kind of odd with all the talk about the Delta variant, but the attitude to the Delta variant is so different than initially with the pandemic. Because with the pandemic, nobody, no one had confidence They didn't know what was ahead. They didn't know what was around the corner, and they were scared to death and unable to make changes. But now every one of those entrepreneurs that survived and came through talk about the Delta variant as, we'll find a way, we'll find a way. And then on top of that, what is terrific now is that a lot of the regulations are being mandated by townships, by states, one-on-one, but at least business people know what's expected of them. There are rules to be played by, and that gives them great peace of mind. But the biggest problem, you named it on your list, if I had to choose only one, is finding the right employees. Everybody's competing for employees, and I don't think there's a single industry that doesn't complain about that day in and day out, but there is a way to skin that cat. And some of the best businesses are having no problem at all hiring people. So what, what is the way? I mean, you, you just have to pay more, or well, um, are you looking the wrong way? What's the, what's the answer? I think, I think the number one thing is uh, they're not cre- people who are not winning in this regard are not creative. The creative people are thinking of lures, creative lures, whether it be additional pay, which is not that common, frankly, from what I could see. I think it's overplayed in the media as to how much more businesses are willing to pay. But they are helping to pay for education, for night courses, and more important than that, they're giving flexibility to workers. I'm telling you, when I look at my top performing businesses making the most money, their attitude to their employees is that they're working for the employee. 
That's not a bad place to start. If they, none of those guys or girls feel like bosses at all. They're trying to figure out what could I make you, what could I do for you to make you happier today. And the number one charm that can charm people to come work for you and stay put is to give people flexibility. Because people have been spoiled. They need to be at home for a lot of reasons. They don't want to commit to commuting anymore. Their attitude has changed. And the employer that's smart enough to give them exactly what they're looking for there is cleaning up. It's, every, it's true of every one of my top performing businesses. By the way, you mentioned commuting. Um, and I know you're, I guess you're, you're born in the Garden State, but I think of you as a quintessential New Yorker. What do you make of Manhattan right now? I, I was there last month walking up and down Lexington Avenue, and I was shocked at how many of the really big box businesses have closed and are emptied out. Um, is Manhattan, is this it? I mean, are people saying, you know, I've had enough of the big city and I'm out? You know, I've lived in Manhattan long enough to uh, never go for that because I've never seen it happen. I've seen the claims all along the way of this is it, this is it, it's never going to happen, this ain't going to happen. But one thing I've learned about the city of New York City, it always comes back. It's just a question of when it's coming back and how strong it's coming back. And when it comes back, I'll tell you, I learned another thing. It always comes back like three to one in timing. Bang, 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 bang. And you go, whoa, what happened? The city is already coming back. When you walk down Madison Avenue, I'm sure you, I'm sure you saw, which I see, roughly 50% of the, of the stores are empty, black windows. It's depressing. But I'm also seeing construction inside most of those stores from new entrepreneurs, less impressive stores that are making a go of it and getting their rent at half price. And that's what regurgitates the city. That's what gets it back on its feet. Because if there's one thing that New York City does better than any other city in the world, it reinvents itself. It has to. It's been forced to over the years, and it always rises to the cry. So I don't see Manhattan as a problem everybody thinks it is. I think it's just like every other problem we had that was going to put away New York City that never really happened. I think it's just a matter of short time before everyone acknowledges it. And, in fact, uh, even apartment prices are up. No one expected that even six months ago. Rental prices are up. Everybody said you could get a deal, and you could. You could get 20% off. Well, right now it's about 30% more expensive to live here already. Look how fast our city rebounds. It's the nature of the town. Yeah, so it's interesting, Barbara. One of the things that I guess a lot of businesses, big and small, learned during the pandemic is the, the ability to really have a, a really viable digital presence, you know, whether it's ordering online or picking up at the store, that type of thing. For the small business operator, are they making the necessary investments, do you think? I'm going to tell you something that might surprise you. The necessary investments that small businesses have to make uh, today uh, to be vibrant in the, on the digital platform are next to nothing. The costs of these improvements have come down so dramatically. There are so many options. There's so much competition in that space that they've actually been empowered to make changes very radically and quickly simply because there are so many options out there. One of the best things I have personally learned, because I'm, I don't ever think of uh, technology as my strong suit. I think of people is what I do well with, right? But from running all these uh, Business Unusual webinar series presented by AT&T Business, I have learned that the name of the game is technology. It used to be an extra, you, you got to be on the digital space, no matter what kind of space you're in now. No, I feel very differently. It starts with digital. And when I see all the new businesses opening, and in fact, when I'm on Shark Tank, when I'm listening to the pitches, the only thing I'm investing in is the people that understand the digital space. I really have changed my whole attitude because only COVID itself 
could have brought about the radical speed that we've encountered lately. It should have taken five years, but it took us nine months. That's it. It's changed. It's all about digital. It's all about digital. It's absolutely been compressed, and we hear that from a lot of guests as well. Barbara, great having you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Barbara Corcoran, as she was saying, she's got a webinar series with AT&T, Business Unusual with Barbara Corcoran. It's geared towards um, well, small businesses, stores, marketplaces, restaurants, online merchants. I guess online is everything now. And you can uh, watch it online. Uh, her website is 888barbara.com. 888barbara.com. Always great to talk to the founder of the Corcoran Group. This is Bloomberg. We've got some big spending bills winding their way through Congress. Uh, financial markets certainly paying attention there, including uh, especially the fixed income markets and municipal bond markets as well. M- Michael Zizas, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist at Morgan Stanley, joins us. Michael, thanks so much for taking the time here. Again, a lot of spending uh, bills getting through Congress. Looks like they're making some progress, at least in the House and on the Democratic side. From your perspective um, as a public policy and municipal strategist, what are the issues you're focusing on? Yeah, first and foremost, it is going to be the deficit impact because that's what we think is going to be the mean feed through to the economic outlook and to the level of Treasury yields. Uh, In our view, this is tracking towards a total spending number spread over 10 years that is approaching $4 trillion dollars. But then the next question, I think this becomes particularly important given that some procedural hurdles were just cleared. The next question is, what types of taxes are Democrats going to raise to offset that spending? And then what's the remaining deficit? Um, our view is they could probably get to two to two and a half trillion dollars of new revenue to offset this. That still means you're looking at a trillion and a half over 10 years of new deficits. And it's probably going to be pretty front loaded given uh, how these spending bills have worked out in the past. So maybe it's as much as a trillion dollars over five years. All of that, when you mix it in with uh, our expectation that the Fed's going to start talking taper here, um, is enough to push yields higher into year end. And that's probably going to matter a lot more than you. Oh, that's a big statement. Else here. That's a big statement considering what we've seen thus far. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot that's enough to push yields higher, and it still hasn't done it yet. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um, but we got a confluence of events here that we see coming together. There's this legislative package. Uh, there's the Fed taper. Uh, also, I think there's improvements in the trajectory of the Delta variant and COVID. Our, our biotech team, which is modeling this for us, um, thinks that we're basically at a plateau there. You've also got boosters coming out over the course of the fall. Uh, and, and so all of that should continue to allow consumption activity, travel activity, et cetera, to pick up, that confluence of events to us can be pretty powerful to push yields higher. Michael, as we think about funding all these programs, are we going to see a revival of the Build America bonds uh, that we had before? Yeah, we think so. This is obviously another important interaction with the muni market. Uh, This is a program that obviously state and local governments generally want and the Democrats in Congress have supported, in particular, Democrats on the House Ways and Means Committee. Now, originally, a revival of this program was supposed to be in the bipartisan bill. It seems to have been left out of that bill. But this $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill, we think we'll have plenty of space to include that. 
Um, that's important because what it does for the muni market over time is it'll probably shift more of the issuance from tax exempt the taxable market. That's probably good news for investors over the long run because it creates some scarcity value, but it would probably take a long time before that market would fully develop. Do you see any uh, – what's the multiplier? Um, when when the federal government spends um, you know, $100, how much does that boost growth in terms of GDP? Yeah, well, obviously it depends on how they're spending that $100. Um, our economists, and I think the consensus amongst economists, is that hard infrastructure dollar spending tends to have the highest multiplier effect over the long run. It creates the most potential GDP. Uh, your, your, your next biggest bang for your buck is if you are taking dollars and giving them to higher marginal propensity to consume cohorts, right? So a lot of the spending in this bill is directed uh, in ways that will impact middle and lower income households. Um, and, and then the taxes are also skewed towards uh, higher income individuals and, and corporations, which, given their current wealth status, probably has a lower marginal propensity to consume. And so the net effect here, plus the deficit effect, our economists will probably view very favorably. Hey, Michael, while we've got you here, I'd love to get your thoughts on the taxable municipal bond market. It's been really a fast-growing market and a good-performing market as well. Yeah, so there is, in the in taxable markets generally, right, so not just the muni market, but the corporate bond market, there, one pocket of the market that doesn't have a lot of supply is highly rated long-duration paper, something that insurance companies need, banks need, et cetera. And muni bond market uh, can easily fill uh, that demand. And it has been increasingly over the past couple of years uh, because that demand pocket is there. So you brought the Build America bond program earlier. This is one of the reasons that this type of program could create uh, a, a relatively attractive source of capital for municipalities because they can meet that demand that's currently not being met uh, by the corporate bond market by and large. All right, Michael, always great to get some time with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Michael Zizas there, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Muni Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Um, and this is, you know, a particularly important um, issue to discuss, as we saw Nancy Pelosi getting getting the, um, uh, the, the reconciliation bill, um, or at least plans for it through the House yesterday. Now that has to go to the Senate, then back to the House. Plus, we have to deal with the 550-slash-1.2 trillion dollar bill. In any case, we could be looking at four to five trillion dollars of spending from the federal government. I guess about four trillion in additional spending. Matt, you know when I was a sell side analyst and going out to see clients on the West Coast. My boss wouldn't even pay for a ticket unless I got a meeting with TCW and Capital Group. Those were the lockdown meetings in Los Angeles. Uh, important folks to chat with. Stephen Kane, he's a group managing director and portfolio manager at TCW. Steve, thanks so much for joining us here. We've got um, Jackson Hole coming up here, uh, I guess, really on Friday's the big day. What are you looking for? What do you expect? What do you hope not to hear? Well, uh, good morning, and, uh, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, in terms of Jackson Hole, I, I really wish I could uh, give you and the listeners uh, some exciting uh, pro prognostication or some off-consensus uh, view, but I really think the uh, consensus, which is a fairly uh, benign one, uh, is, is probably right, which is that 
we're not going to get much from uh, Chairman Powell. He's, he's likely to recognize that there's been some improvement in the labor market, and he's probably going to balance that with some negative concerns about the Delta virus and, and downside risks. Um, but the bottom line is he's, he's most likely going to stay away from any specifics on taper. Um, and that's mainly because he wants to maintain flexibility and really not to front run the FOMC, which is really the standard process by which they, they you know, make formal pronouncements on, on, on uh, taper and that type of thing. So as much as we'd like to hear him get into the details of what substantial further progress might mean or uh, something along those lines, I think those types of uh, uh, evolutions in the in the fed will will occur at the uh, september meeting most likely what you know it's i i don't see how they can ignore what's going on in the housing market it's just unbelievable um especially for younger you know first-time home buyers good luck unless you have the cash on hand you're just not going to get it um and how does the fed contribute to that with its merchants with its uh, mortgage bond purchases yeah, I don't think the Fed is all that concerned, uh, although they arguably should be, about the conditions in the housing market. Actually, the, the, the housing, you know, their goal is to provide affordable credit um, and assist in that way through the uh, uh, purchase of agency mortgages, which they're doing to the tune of $40 billion a month. So with, uh, you know, 30-year mortgage rates below 3%, um, uh, even though housing prices are high, I, I think they view their job as controlling the price of credit, not, not, not necessarily the price of the asset. Um, so it's a little bit beyond their control. At least that, that's probably how they're uh, viewing it. All right, Steve, I'm looking at the uh, my Bloomberg terminal here. I see the tenure at uh, yielding 1.33%. It's, it's higher than it had been in over the last week or so, uh, but still in that range that we've seen for such a long time here. Where do you and the good folks at TCW look for yield, look for total return in this kind of market? It's a challenge, <laughs> uh, exactly. to put it bluntly. We're, we're a value investor here, which means we tend to buy things as they get cheaper. And there's not a whole lot that is cheap right now. You've got, as you just pointed out, very low treasury yields. Um, and beyond that, it's even worse as you look to the, uh, uh, the risk markets, the corporate market and the high-yield market, emerging market. Uh, spreads and risk premium are near all-time tight. So the general theme for us is to to begin or we've already been doing it to rein in risk budgets and uh what that means is carry our durations or our interest rate risk short of benchmarks or carry them short um with the expectations rates are going to rise uh pull back on our credit beta which means we've been trimming uh a corporate exposure although we do see idiosyncratically some uh some opportunities and specific uh uh, credits that are improving and deleveraging, but generally speaking, we have less exposure than the market. Uh, some of the areas we actually find a little bit of value in is the agency mortgage-backed securities market. That's the Ginny, Fannie, Freddie market that the Fed is actively supporting through uh, asset purchases, and that those purchases are creating a bit of a distortion in the TBA or forward delivery market that is giving additional carry to those securities in the market. So you're getting spreads beyond what you get in corporate bonds for a zero credit risk asset and one that has very good liquidity. So I would highlight that. It's hard to get uh, super excited about uh, something yielding, you know, uh, about one and a half percent, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's still fairly attractive on a risk adjusted basis. Uh, and then I would say 
beyond that, the high-quality area of the securitized market, um, non-agency mortgages, some areas of the commercial mortgage-backed securities market. CLOs are actually an area of the market, uh, particularly the kind of AAA, AA area, that look reasonably appealing when compared to um, unsecured corporate credit. Just got like 20 seconds left, but um, you agree then that rates are going to rise uh, when and how high? Yeah, I think our view is the market probably has it right at the front end of the curve, meaning, you know, when you look at two years uh, at, a, at a whopping 24 basis points or even the five year at 80 basis points, that implies a very slow, gradual pace of, of Fed uh, hikes. Yep starting maybe late next year, where we think the risk is out the curve, that 130, 10-year or sub-2%, 30-year, we think as the Fed tapers right. and as the market begins to anticipate uh, normalization yep. of uh, short-term rates, you're going to get higher rates out the curve. So we do think you'll get uh, okay. 10-year rates above 2% in the future. Hey, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts and insights. Stephen Kane, Group Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at TCW. Let's bring in Steve Quick right now. He is the CEO of Unispace to talk to us about um, the future of work, uh, how the office may change, how the Delta variant is impacting um, the RTO plans, to use the popular new acronym for return to office. Steve, thanks very much for joining us. Um, Everything seems to be uh, there's a lot of deja vu going on right now compared to what we had at the end of last summer. Is this the final year, you think? <laughs> I certainly hope so. <laughs> Thanks for having me, first of all. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, here's what I think is going to happen as it relates. To that. I, I think it is uh, the final year. Uh, I think realistically, you know, we could be seeing, you know, and I'm no epidemiologist, but we could be, you know, we could be seeing some rolling COVID variants, you know, over the next several years. But I think we've uh, we've got the mechanisms to uh, adapt to that, hopefully. All right. So, uh, you know, I think it's interesting, Steve, you know, back in September of 2020, you said that the uh, office space would not die per se, maybe just be smaller. I think you said maybe 20 percent smaller. Yep. So it's been almost a year. Is that still kind of where you think things are going to go here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's, a, it's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, we actually, we just finished a survey with more than 100 of uh, 100 global companies, and it still looks like about 20 to 30 percent is sort of the sweet spot of range, where uh, people are looking to reduce their their footprint, um, kind of in this you know this new normal. And then, and then what they're doing is you know they're reconfiguring um, not just their workplace, but also some of their HR standards and things like that to to adjust to as you said the the RTO the industry jargon here because if we get back to RTO um, and so that's what we're still seeing um, you know I think the thing we're seeing in the U S is Delta variant has has delayed that RTO by you know sixty to ninety days and you've seen all those those reports too where you know there was the return to office by September one or October one and now people are saying let's let's look further out in the fall. Um, so that's been the that's been the the return to the return to office, um, if you will, plan hasn't changed. The timing has has uh, has changed given the Delta variant. You know, when I was a kid, my dad um, had his own office, still has his own office. It was great. His own whole room. He could keep a few toys in there for the kids visits. He had a stereo and even a bar in the corner. That's no longer 
I mean, that's been for 20 years, not the way it works, right? We all have right. cubicles that are slightly glorified, but not really. Is it going to get even worse going forward? Are we going to be hot desking in a bullpen from now on? I would, uh, yeah, you, when you're saying that, it reminds me of Mad Men or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it's, in, you know, it's yeah, but how awesome I, was that, by the way? That, that, <laughs> that, that was, you know, enough inspiration to get up, ha- have him get up and go to work at 4.30 every day. You Absolutely. don't look forward <laughs> to going to a hot desk, do you? Yeah. No, I, I so I, th- I will tell you, I think it's going to get better. So we've, we've been on this evolution of the workplace for, you know, like you said, you know, arguably a couple decades, but at least, you know, I've seen it up front and, and close for the last decade as we've moved to yeah, the open plan, less dedicated offices, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so we've all seen that. What COVID has done is accelerated that evolution by, you know, we've taken 10 years of further evolution and we compress it in 18 months. And so, you know, I think what you're, you know, because what was preventing sort of that true flexible working, it was, it was sometimes there was concern about technology bandwidth. We've kind of figured that out in the last 18 months. That was H- people still couldn't get their head around. Well, I need to see some people still had the mentality of I had to see my employees to make sure they're doing the work. And I think everyone sort of people that were last holdouts of managing employees that way have sort of had to adapt. So we've broken down those barriers. And now now we're as we get back to work, it's going to be about flexibility or omni working is uh, one of my friends likes to call it. And so I don't think you're actually going to be in too many cubicles crammed in doing heads down work. The purpose of the office is going to be, it's kind of, you know, do that, do that work wherever you want to do that work, whether that's at home or the train or the Starbucks or wherever. But when you do come to the office, it's going to be more and more about getting together with your colleagues, training sessions, collaboration, uh, mentoring has come up a lot in our surveys where some of the younger employees aren't getting the mentoring like they do when you're sort of in the office or pulled into a meeting and then have a debrief. And so the purpose of the office is going to be more around those elements um, versus sort of the let's let's get even closer and heads down and crank out emails together. So I actually think that that sort of Dilbert approach is actually going to get better, not worse, is my view. All right, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's a fascinating discussion that I think a lot of companies are having with their employees here um, as we get back. And Labor Day seems to be one of those kind of days where, or time periods where uh, I think some companies are going to want to try to get a little bit more uh, supportive of getting people back in the office. Steve Quick, CEO of Unispace. Let's uh, get back to markets and focus in on what's going on with Dave Harden. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. They have $1.8 billion of assets under management out of Salt Lake City. Mm. And Dave, um, let's start with just the fact that even though we're not moving a lot today, we keep having these new records, I think 50 new record highs this year, even as Dave Wilson shows us the spread between investment grade and high yield debt um, and treasuries gets wider and wider what what are we what are we missing well it's hard to it's hard to say we're missing anything but i tell you it sure feels like it right appreciate you having me on matt and paul you know i would say that these new highs we're on pace for 77 if it continues and that ties with records set in 1954 and 1995 so definitely interesting that we're continuing to hit new highs but can you really doubt it we have a supported Fed. We have a Congress that's writing bills like, you know, they have a blank check. We have so much stimulus going into the market right now. It's hard not to be short-term positive. So 
I guess one of the issues that investors are working through, Dave, is kind of where do I want to be in this market? Do I want to stay with those growth stocks, the Apples, the Amazons, the Apples that have worked so well for me for so long and have been the mainstay of my IRA and my portfolio? Or do I want to follow this rotation trade, which, again, has been a great trade, you know, in terms of the cyclicals and maybe the small caps and things like that? How do you think about that? Well, I think if you want to brag about your portfolio by Christmas, then maybe staying with growth is where you want to be, uh, you know, because it's hard to not favor growth short term. But long term, I would favor more value. And if you can find that very big quality company that also still has value in it and they're out there, that's where I would start to rotate. It's, it's better to be early to the trade a little bit than late. So, you know, as we look out, the growth is going to be hard. Inflation is coming in hotter than expected, and we have the possibility of taking the punch bowl away from the Fed and the quantitative easing. So if you look out longer term, I think it's the right time for people to start thinking about, because they have not thought about it whatsoever, is risk and how to Hmm. manage risk and how to look at the potential dry powder or the risk in their portfolio. And that's what we do really well at SGI is we look at the potential risk and we say, how do we prudently and properly manage your portfolio? These unseen risks are going to hurt people in the future. All right. So what do you um, what do you see at Summit happening post Jackson Hole? You said the Fed is going to take away the punch bowl. Obviously, they're going to at some point they have to scale back purchases. Do they ever raise rates? I, I think they I think they're going to have to. I don't think it's going to come right out after Jackson Hole. Um, it's, it's just too great of a place there if you've ever been there um, to, tank, to kind of make you relax. And I think they're pretty relaxed. But the fact is, is that we have Delta, this COVID variant, that's really hitting the workforce productivity. And so even if it doesn't uh, do more damage in the sense of, uh, of deaths or severe illness, it's stopping people from being productive. And that's what seems to be the case of inflation. And it's causing inflation. We've got these supply chain problems. So the rea- reality is, is that I think that it's gonna, inflation is going to be hotter. It's going to put pressure on the Fed. And they're going to have to taper a little bit sooner than what, I mean, not tape, yeah, stop this quantitative easing a little bit sooner than what expectations are currently out there. So I do see interest rates rising. I do see a pressure on the Fed to act. So, Dave, where's your asset allocation now? You know, equities, credit, that type of thing. You know, from an asset allocation standpoint, it's hard to say, hey, I'm really long bonds right now with a, you know, with, with the 10 year under one and a half percent. Right. So this is a really difficult thing when you have a yield of like ExxonMobil at six point two percent and, uh, you know, very low short interest and marginable risk. So you can get yield in a number of different ways if it's just yield. But from an asset allocation standpoint, there's other things to take into consideration, and that is protection. So we do see for, you know, the kind of the non-aggressive investors that are more conservative in their portfolios to have some allocation to credit, to have some allocation into this bond market, um, because it does offer protection. And so, you know, there is some uh, legitimacy to that, that for decades, has, has, has done just that, offer protection. All right, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time here. Dave Harden, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. 
You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. 